Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk all about maps, particularly using maps in your in-person games, the difficulty of doing so, and a bunch of different potential solutions for running maps during your game. We're also going to do a spotlight of the work of J.P. Kuvert. J.P. has done a lot of really interesting work with maps, but also has a fantastic set of adventures and role-playing game accessories and entire role-playing games on his website. We're going to take a look at that, and we're going to do more questions from the May 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of cool things like the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a dedicated Discord server, the, the monthly Q&A, and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's a very reasonable price. To the patrons of Sly, Sly Flourish, thank you so much for helping me put on this show. So imagine you went out to buy a board game. Let's say you went out to buy Monopoly. And when you go out to the store, you go and you pick up your copy of Monopoly and you bring it home and you open it up and inside is just the rule book. And it says, here's how you play Monopoly. You're going to need a bunch of cards. So you're going to want to go get a bunch of three by five cards and write out the instructions on those cards. You're also going to need your own tokens to represent your character in Monopoly. You can use either dice or things you have around the house or you can go and we have specialized sets of those that you can buy. And you're going to want to draw out the board. You need a board in order to play Monopoly. You're going to have to sit down and draw out this entire board to play how many people do you think would play monopoly probably not a lot because that's kind of a pain in the ass that's sort of what we have to do with dnd i mean look at this map the palace of hearts desire a gorgeous map and it's got like 50 rooms in there it's really really big it's really really complicated and they expect that the characters are going to go and explore this place now you can describe it to them of course but try describing room p31 to them and having them remember at all what you're talking about well you have this central circle that you're standing on there's a great big storm below there's a hundred or so pillars that are around the outside there's also seven smaller deuses around it several seven smaller platforms are around it and stair and, and, and bridges that are heading off northwest northeast southwest and southeast there are three two doors on the western side one door on the eastern side two doors on the southern side and one door on the northern side plus two outcrop you'd never remember all of this stuff right you can never describe i'm pretty confident you couldn't describe room p31 and have anybody understand what you're trying to describe to them so then what's your alternative draw it but that's a pretty complicated room to draw i've actually done it i sat down with a great big sheet of one inch gridded paper and a sharpie and tried drawing that map out and it took me like 20 minutes it was a long time and that's just one room look at this whole dungeon that you've got now we as DMs get the beautiful full color version of this that everybody gets. But what are, what are we supposed to do for players? There's not a great solution for this. There are lots of different solutions that people have come up with for running maps. And we're going to talk about it. But to me, the really interesting thing is that for 50 years, this game that we love, that we adore has been missing a big piece of it, which is what are you supposed to do with maps? I became really acutely aware of this problem after I switched to running online for about two years during COVID and all of my groups moved to online play and we used virtual tabletops. In that case, I used Owlbear Rodeo and Owlbear Rodeo ran beautifully and you could take a map like this and throw it directly into Owlbear Rodeo, throw a fog of war over it and then start showing the characters what they see as they go. And it works really, really well. And with Owlbear, it's really, really easy to do. You get the copy on DD beyond you move the image over to albert rodeo put up your fog of war and everything was set so for two years i had a great solution for maps which is online play and virtual tabletops which work really really well and that i think is one interesting point that online and running games online has far better solutions for reusing maps at the table than in person does 
Then after two years, when my group came back to the table, we started having players back to our table to play again. I felt lost. I've been playing this game for like 30 years and I felt totally lost. I'm like, what am I supposed to do about these maps? I used to just go grab Dyson logo maps, throw them into Owlbear Rodeo, fog of war them, and I could improvise an entire dungeon very, very easily. But for in-person play, it was really hard. I wasn't sure exactly what I was supposed to do. So I reached out. I did polls on Twitter. I did polls on YouTube. I asked DMs, what do you guys use for this? What are your solutions? Many people said it's not a problem. And let me tell you this. If you're listening to my crazy rant right now, and it's not a problem for you, if you have a solution that you love and you adore, A, let me know what it is, because I'm always curious. But B, then you don't have to listen to my rant. If it's not a problem for you, it's not a problem right? It's a problem for me. And I think it's probably a problem for a lot of DMs. I have a suspicion that's a lot of problem because there are so many different solutions. I don't think there's a great, a great way to do this. So Wizards of the Coast just put out a new starter set called the Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. And in this, they have a new book. And this is really intended to go to people who have never played D&D before. And you open up the book and this is the description. It says the maps in this adventure are for the DM's eyes only. They show secret doors and other elements that the players aren't meant to see. Which is really funny because the maps are gorgeous. There's these big, beautiful maps. But no, they're just for you. They're not for anybody else. When the characters arrive at a location marked on a map, describe it to give them a clear mental picture of the location. You can also draw what they see on paper, copying what's on your map while omitting secret details. It's not important that your hand-drawn maps perfectly match what's in the adventure. Try to get the basic shapes and dimensions correct and leave the rest of the player's imaginations. So they're saying, draw it on a piece of paper. It's not terrible advice, but when you look at like the details of the maps that you have in the, in the guide itself and then think like, oh, I have to draw that out, you can do it. And actually, we're going to talk about a product today by JP Covert that gives you tools to help you draw maps like this and draw them pretty easily. There's still, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. And again, it's sort of like in Monopoly saying, hey, you're going to know, you're going to go have to draw your own board in order to play Monopoly on it. Because it's been 50 years, I don't know that there is an ideal solution for this. Wizards of the Coast themselves have tried a lot of different things. They just recently put out the campaign case for tiles, and it includes like a general board that you can write on with a wet or dry erase mat. It's got a bunch of like interlocking tiles, and it's got a bunch of like static cling things that you can throw there to build a map. But their own products don't use it. There's no way you're building the Palace of Hearts Desire using that campaign case. So it's sort of like, here's a bunch of tools that can help you kind of make maps, but then here's these other products we put out that have these beautiful maps that you don't have. Printing them in color, if you're going to take that Palace of Hearts Desire, first of all, it's not going to fit. It's going to be a huge poster if you try to print it out. And printing a color poster like that is like 50 bucks. You're going to pay basically the price of the adventure to print one map if you're going to take that physical map and put it on your board. So that doesn't really work either. A lot of people use digital displays. They talk about getting like a big monitor and putting it in the center of their table, maybe a piece of acrylic over the top so you can treat it like a battle map. Other people have used like weird mirrors and projectors and stuff like that to be able to project an image on a table and do something like that. I have a monitor that's up in the room where I can kind of broadcast the map up in the corner of the room so people can look up and see. And that's probably about the cheapest you're going to get. But still, you're talking like 150 or 200 bucks or more. If you're going to get one embedded in your table, it's going to cost a fortune. So that's not exactly like a solution that's accessible to everybody. And the reality is there isn't one solution that's just accessible to everybody that works perfectly well. So we're going to talk about a few different ways that you can put and use maps in your table in physical play today. And you can try these out, try out different ones, probably use two or three different ones rather than just fixing on one type and use these as best as you can. But the reality is in my time researching this, there just isn't a perfect solution for doing maps like this. 
One of my favorite improvisational tools for D&D overall is the basic version of the Pathfinder flip mat. You can pick this up on Amazon for like eight or nine bucks, run $17 retail with no sale, but you can get off and get it for a lot less. And it is a really, really good 24 by 30 inch foldable mat. It's very, very thin. It folds up to about the size of a sheet of paper, about eight by 10. So you can fit it into a box very easily. If you have a table at home, you can actually slide it underneath an acrylic sheet and put that as your gaming table. And that works really, really well. The blank version of the mat makes it very easy to draw out dungeons quickly using a wet erase or dry erase marker. I use dry erase markers myself. And it's a really good way to draw a quick map. I love it as an improvisational aid because you can also do things like keep track of your monster hit points on it. You can do little sketches of weird symbols that the characters find. I just find this idea of having this like 24 by 30 inch whiteboard that sits in front of you and the players is a really, really valuable tool. Of all of the tools that I've tried for doing any kinds of maps, it is by far the most flexible, the least expensive, the most versatile product that you can get. And it's it's lightweight, it's cheap. You can buy one and use it for a decade, 20 years. You can use it as long as it lasts until the corners fold up on the ends. It really, really is a fantastic tool. Now, Unfortunately, it does take time to draw out a map on it. You could probably draw a room or two on it. You can certainly draw like a big circle and little lines to represent the interconnections of dungeons and things like that. We're going to look at examples of that. But it does take time to draw the map on it. Do you want to draw maps ahead of time on it? You can. I tend not to. One thing to know about the flip mat is that Paizo actually sells a bigger flip mat, a bigger version of it, but I found it to be un- a little bit more unwieldy. That bigger in this case was definitely not better. Having the smaller one, it's easier to fold out. It's like nine panels, folds up really easily. The bigger one has this sort of overlap. It's not nearly as elegant as the basic normal sized flip mat. So I would stick to the normal sized one instead of trying to get the bigger one. The one good reason to get a bigger one though is if it's going to sit on your table underneath an acrylic sheet and it's going to stay there forever, that works really well. By the way, those acrylic sheets, you can get these large like 36 by 48 inch acrylic sheets at like a Home Depot or another kind of hardware store or home improvement store. And they cost a little bit. They're like 40 bucks as well. But you can put sticky tack in the corners and put it on top of a table. And if you have a dedicated table for gaming, it's a wonderful, wonderful surface that you can slide maps underneath and it works really really well i love the acrylic sheet the acrylic sheet for mapping is another really really good tool relatively inexpensive for what you get something that can last for for decades and really makes the whole experience of using a map more fun easier it feels good with tokens it feels good with miniatures it's perfectly flat you can draw on it with a dry erase or wet erase marker so you can draw directly on top of the acrylic sheet for all of your stuff it works really really well i highly recommend it If I was going to draw a map ahead of time, I would actually instead get these big sheets of 24 by 30 inch or 24 by 36 inch poster paper that has a one inch grid on it. You can get about two pads of these for, I think it's like 40 bucks. It's probably the least expensive way to get a bunch of paper to draw maps on and then use a Sharpie. Dry erase markers have a tendency of drying up really quickly, but Sharpies last a long time. So if you're going to draw a map ahead of time, you can get these great big sheets of paper and draw maps on that. Here's an example of a couple of rooms that I drew for one of the maps for Running Wild Beyond the Witchlight. You can see it's this big sheet of paper. I took a Sharpie, I drew it out. It actually looks like, when you look at the cross hatching and stuff like that, it looks like this talk, took a fair bit of time. It was maybe 20 minutes. It wasn't a tremendous amount of time, and I thought it ended up looking pretty good. I, I sort of went overboard with this. I don't think you actually need to do all of the cross hatching if you don't want to, but it was not. it didn't take nearly as long as you might think in order to do the cross hatching and make the map look really well. If you know 
know that your players are going to be going to a particular area and you want to draw a nice map of it, I think that this is an excellent way to go. The flip mat is really good for improvisational drawings that you want to do at your table. But these great big sheets of one inch gridded paper that you can pick up, you can get 50 page pads, two of them for 41 bucks on Amazon. That's what I picked up, which seems like a lot, $42, but it's a hundred sheets. There's a hundred maps that you can draw it. Many times you can draw, you can use like half a sheet for one map and half a sheet for another if the maps are relatively small. So it's a pretty good deal. A lot of people talked about getting like old wrapping paper and using the backs of wrapping paper, which often have a one inch grid on them as well. And you can draw on that. It turns out that this is about as cheap as that is per square inch. I went and did the math and figured out like how many square inches do you get for 41 bucks compared to like buying wrapping paper and the 100 sheets of one inch gridded paper of 27 by 34 inch 100 sheets was cheaper than wrapping paper so it's really really cheap per page to get this if you're going to use it and two pads might last you for years i've been using them for at least a year now and i barely even scratched the surface of them so it's a little bit of an investment up front but it's way cheaper in the end. And again, it, that one is very, very flexible. You can draw anything that you want on it. You can draw in any style that you like, but it does take time. You're going to have to spend the time in order to draw it. It's more expensive than a flip mat. The flip mat, again, is like eight or nine bucks, You know, sometimes 12, sometimes $16, depending on when you get it and what kind of price you get. But you can, so this is a little bit more expensive than that. It doesn't have quite the flexibility because once you've drawn it out, that map is basically drawn and you're done. But it's about as flexible as you're going to get. I highly recommend, if you're willing to draw maps out, I highly highly recommend that as as an approach. Now, let's say you don't actually want to sit and draw out your maps, but you have a map, a, particularly a black and white map that you want to print out at a scale that you can use with miniatures and things like that. There's one approach, which is going to a local print shop and asking them to print it as an architectural diagram. My local FedEx, for example, will do this, where I can take a Dyson logo map and I can scale it out to fit on a 36 by 48 inch piece of paper or a 24 by 36. 24 by 36 inch, by the way, works much better than 36 by 48. 36 by 48 is so big that it's really just unwieldy. It's really hard to get it down on the table. It's really hard to like set it out. Unfortunately, sometimes though maps are that big. This map that I have here displayed was a about a 36 by 36 inch map. There wasn't a really good way to scale it down to 24 inches. So I printed out 36 by 48, but it took me some work to get it underneath my big acrylic sheet. This, by the way, you can see how the acrylic sheet works. I'm using sticky tack to put it right down on my dining room table. You can easily get the sticky tack up. And even after months, sitting there you can get all the tack off so don't worry about it damaging your table and it's really good way to slide this under and again it just feels great you can put tokens right on it, you can put maps right on it. it feels really good the nice thing about doing it as an architectural print is it's way cheaper to print if you're printing black and white maps it is far cheaper to print them as an architectural or a blueprint like your staples or fedex this map which is a 36 by 48 inch map cost me nine dollars to print out if you were to try to print a color version of it, it can be like 50 or 60 bucks so so it's way, way cheaper to print as an architectural diagram or a blueprint. It looks just as good. It looks really, really good. The paper is definitely thinner. So again, a little harder to kind of like slide under the acrylic sheet easily, but you can, you can get there. And it's just far cheaper, particularly for a map that you're only going to use once or twice. So if you're looking to print a full size version of this map at scale, you can do so by going to like a local print shop and ask and having it printed as an architectural or blueprint version of the map. Again, you'll save a ton of money about, about five times less. 
Now, there's a problem with the great big printout too, though, which is how do you do the fog of war? When I was running a game this past week, I used my great big printout, that one we just showed, but I don't want to just put this whole map down and show it to them. I want to do a fog of war. I want them to explore the area. But with a map this big, it's a little tricky to do. So I used like old cut up t-shirts and cut up pillowcases and stuff like that that we had lying around. And I used them as a fog of war. The miniatures are here. I called them my furies, right? They're basically like the gargoyles up in the building that are there to scare the characters. And I I use those so that when the players are sitting around the table manipulating stuff, it's a little harder for them to accidentally expose an area of the map. The nice thing about using cloth like this is you can bend the cloth around to just show the parts that they want to show. But this was a little bit clunky as well. Again, not an ideal solution. This idea of kind of moving the shirts around and showing off what they see, that was kind of tricky to do. Now my players between games, I don't even remember which rooms I showed them before. So it's a little tricky for me to understand exactly how what, what areas to hide and how to hide it and how to hide it in a way that it's easy for you to expose it as the characters go. But I did find these like large pieces of cloth that that can kind of work as well, but kind of clunky. Now, another solution to this is instead of printing out a great big map like this is you can actually take the map itself. This map, by the way, is called the Grotto Beneath Lazuni Hill done by DysonLogos.com. You can see it's the exact same map. And one thing that you can do is instead of printing out the whole map at once, you basically print it out chamber by chamber. So for example, I might say uh, on an eight and a half by 11 page, I just want to print this part out. So I'm going to do a screenshot basically where I take that one room. So now I have just a picture of that room and I can print off just that room and put that room right on the paper and they can see all the different places that they can go. One, one little trick here is if I, I want to block this out so like I can open that up in preview. It's a little clunky, but you see how like the secret room is exposed. I can actually convert it to a ping and I can delete that one part. And like now there's a block there and, and players may be like, huh, I wonder what's over there. So you're, you're exposing a little bit, but that's okay. But when you print out just this room, now instead of showing the entire map, I can drop just that chamber on there. Then, of course, I do it for another chamber as well. You know, I can do a screenshot of each of these rooms one at a time and just show the areas that they can see. And all I have to do is print out each of these rooms independently from one another on a single sheet of eight and a half by 11 paper. The scale might be a little bit off, you know, certain things might get exposed that you don't want to expose to, but I did it for this map. I actually just tried it out. I didn't use it in my game, but basically this entire dungeon was about 10 sheets of paper. So if I'm willing to print 10 black and white sheets that show each of these rooms, then what I can do is I can place down each piece of paper to show the room as they explore the area. That was a pretty good solution as well. And honestly, if I hadn't already spent the nine bucks over at, at FedEx in order to print the whole map, I probably would have done this instead. I probably would have printed out each individual room and drop each individual room down on, on the table so that the players could see where it goes. The flexibility in that isn't great because you've got to stay in the dungeon, but the nice thing is it doesn't matter what direction they take in the dungeon. I just look for whatever room they saw. I look through in my, my sheets that I've got and I drop that one on the table. Depending on how expensive it is for you to print a single sheet of paper, for me, I already have a black and white printer. I have a printer that can print black and white and the, the cost per page is like 10 cents. So it really doesn't cost me a lot to print out an entire map, even if it's a whole bunch of different 
pictures of those locations. That's not a bad way to go either. So there's also no reason that you can't mix your media types. You don't have to just use physical maps. You don't have to use just one type, and you certainly don't have to use one type forever. You can use a mixture of drawing your maps out in, in an improv style using a flip mat. You can draw it out on big sheets of grid paper. You can print out maps at, at FedEx. You can do the single sheets, and you can even do things like Dwarven Forge. So for that map that I was just running, I actually built out a couple of the chambers using Dwarven Forge for sort of the bigger encounters that were going to take place. And then when the players got to that chamber, instead of using the chamber on the map, I dropped the, the Dwarven Forge section right on there as well. So this way you can sort of mix all of your media together. You can do a whole bunch of different things. Try a bunch of different things. Figure out which ones work well. F figure out which ones work well when you're doing like a great big boss fight versus just exploring a traditional dungeon. You can really try a bunch of different things out and pick one. One of the tricks to being a good lazy DM in my mind is letting yourself be open to lots of different ways of doing things. Instead of just saying, I'm only ever going to use this. I'm only ever going to use Paizo printed mats or I'm only ever going to use an online play. Leave yourself open to try lots of different tools and lots of different times for lots of different situations. Flex with all of the different ways that you have to go. And what you can do is then, then you're never bound to any one particular way of doing something. You have lots of different ways that you can try. Experiment with them, find out the ones that work well for you, and then keep a handful of these together to pick the ones that work well for the situation that you're running at the table. JP Kuvert over on his website, you can find a link down in the show notes below, has an awesome book called Drawing Dungeons. I ordered a copy of this book last week and I picked it up and I think it's an outstanding resource to give you ideas about how you can draw your dungeons when you're either drawing them on a flip mat or maybe you're drawing them on those big sheets of paper. But it also has some other ideas in here that I wanted to talk about. It's a very short book. It's a 16 page book, but it gives you a lot of ideas about how to draw maps. You know, here's an example map that's really well done. You can see with the cross hatching and all the details and things like this, it looks really, really excellent. But a lot of the individual techniques that were used to, to draw this map are pretty straightforward. They're little circles, a little circle with a star in them, a little, you know, coffin-shaped box. They're all pretty basic symbols that you can use. Like, that pit looks awesome, and really all it is is two wiggly circles with some dots and being in, filled in. It's really straightforward. He talks about what tools to use for drawing your maps, but this is one of the ones that I want to talk about, which is, you know, he, he refers to this as, like, a way to get a good idea what the layout of your dungeon is like. But if you running a dungeon for your players at the table and it's really more about exploration and not so much about the individual details of any particular chamber you can use a diagram like this at the table you can draw out instead of saying like oh you've got all these passageways and they're all going in different directions and all these doors you can like draw a square and you can just highlight this is there's a door here a door here a door here a door here there's this thing here there's this thing here there's this hallway and then make it relatively small so that you can expand outwards and you can draw hallways or just lines rooms are just squares or circles. It's very straightforward to draw kind of a big elaborate dungeon with a lot of loopbacks, a lot of the Jayquay's style techniques for dungeons of loopbacks and elevation changes and secret entrances and stuff like that. You can sketch that out very quickly with just lines, boxes, and circles. You really don't have to spend a lot of time. So when you have a big piezo flip mat in front of you, for example, and you are diagramming a dungeon while you're running it, you can actually just use this little map to show the players all of the places that they've been, all the places they have haven't seen yet and they can get that idea with just 
it's like stick figure style dungeons. It's a very effective way to draw out the layout of a dungeon without having to put any more details. Now, when you want to put more details in, this book has you covered. It talks a lot about what stairs look like, what elevation looks like when you're doing elevation changes, how to do water. And it looks really good. Like when you're looking at it, you're like, wow, that looks amazing. And then you say like, well, what did he actually do here? And it's really like just a couple of lines that show sort of the outline of what water looks like. It's very straightforward techniques for drawing dungeons. Pits, of all different kinds you know if you want to have like these big canyons how to draw those little like contour lines for elevation changes very straightforward stuff you know what does a door look like what do trap doors look like secret doors what iron grates like all different kinds of doors spiral staircases stone stairs that are worked stone natural stairs that are unworked stone beds tables chairs thrones tapestries statues braziers fireplaces armor chests all those kinds of things altars wells all these sorts of things that they have in here. Really, really excellent key to draw this. And also very straightforward stuff to be able to draw. It really doesn't take a lot of time. One thing you can do is practice, right? Spend a little time, practice drawing out these kinds of symbols. Get them in your mind. Keep this handy. The physical version is really inexpensive to pick up and it's very small. It's an excellent book to have on hand. Again, you can find a link in the show notes below to pick it up. I saw JP Kuvert has a wonderful YouTube channel where he shows how to use all this stuff. He talks about all this stuff. One wonderful, beautiful videos where he talks about all these things. And then you can also pick up the book and keep the book on hand when you're drawing your maps, but practice it out. Take your little notebook and sketch these things out. Like look at the fungi, right? That definitely looks like fungi. It's little circles with a dash underneath. It's very straightforward. I like the little Nintendo JRPG style slime. That's pretty cool. How do you do your finishing touches? You know, walls, and they definitely make the map look a lot better. If you want to do like cross hatching and stuff like that, you can do so. But you know, that might take a lot of time. You might not really have to bother. You can see like this straight map is probably not terribly difficult to draw out, but it looks really good. You probably don't want to draw it out to like this level of detail while your friends are sitting around a table. But you could, if you knew that they were going to go to a certain place and you wanted to draw it out, you could draw it out like this and it's fun to do. And it takes a little bit of time. Again, there's no ideal solution. It takes a little bit of time, but the kind of symbology that's used in here is very straightforward. More about texturing and cross-hatching and things like this. Again, if you want to try it out, definitely do it. You can do it like little dots and things like that. You can do the Dyson-style cross-hatching. Shading, if you have like a shader marker, you can definitely use that. That's, that's pretty fast too. Really, really excellent book. Very short book talks exactly about the thing that we're talking about today, which is how to draw dungeons. So I highly recommend this book. J.P. Kuvert website is in the show notes below called Flick Silver Pen's Guide to Drawing Dungeons. An excellent, an excellent product. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about one of my favorite ways to handle battles and complicated situations, which is running it in the theater of the mind, using a clear set of guidelines that we agree upon with our players about how to run certain battles without using any representation for miniatures or positioning or maps or tokens or anything like that. It's incredibly flexible. The price is zero. The scalability and flexibility is infinite. It takes up no space. It takes up, we can describe any, anything we can describe, we can use. It's very, very powerful. There are definite disadvantages though. A lot of times the players that are sitting around the table don't have the exact same view of the situation that's going on. Certain players, certain people have a, have a condition called aphantasia where they can't really visualize exactly what you're describing and for players like that. And it can be, you know, enough people have this that you will most certainly run into people who have this situation but if you can for simple battles where they're just facing a few people running into the theater of mind is very very effective it's the cheapest solution it is incredibly flexible it uses up no space it takes no t 
time to set up. It's very, very flexible system. But you, if you do have players who really need some kind of visual, you can do a thing that I refer to as abstract maps. I have articles for all of these ideas down in the show notes below. The concept behind an abstract map is that you don't really pay attention to specific five foot distances. You don't worry too much about exact spacing and positioning. Instead, you worry about the general situation that's going on. You can actually use like three by five cards to represent zones, set out the different zones to say there's an altar over here. There's a hallway with a bunch of statues here. And then there's the doorway that you came in that has the four burning braziers. The skeletons are in the middle part of the zone. The main bad guys in the back part of the zone. And you don't worry you can still visualize it you can still put it out on a table so people have a general understanding of what's going on and people that have aphantasia where they can't really see the whole situation in their mind can still look and go ah i know i'm over here bad guys over here i can take two moves to try to get over there but i can take opportunity attacks because the guy's here so the abstract map to me is a really really powerful and flexible way of doing combat maps that don't take a lot of time don't take don't use up a lot of money don't take a lot of space and have a lot of flexibility which are really the main things that you're considering when you're looking at your different map solutions how much time does it take how much space does it take up how much money does it cost and how flexible is the solution for me so abstract maps are really really powerful one of the reasons why i'm picking on DD specifically for this problem of selling us a game that where it feels like we should have a board in front of us and we don't is because Dungeons and Dragons is still working in very specific distances. Like they have five foot distances. They talk up, they use feet distances for things like how far a spell can go or how far you can move or how big of an area you have. And that lends itself to more of a gridded style of play. Now, some people will say it's the only style of play that you can't play D&D without a grid. I've had people tell me this. You can't play D&D without a grid, which is ridiculous because lots of people are playing D&D without a grid. I don't play with a grid most of the time, but you have to abstract it. You have to abstract those distances and things like that. Other games tend not to have this problem because they don't have an expectation of fixed distances like that. 13th Age, Dungeon World, Call of Cthulhu, Numenera, lots of other systems. Any of the Apocalypse World style games, any, a lot of Fate, you know, Fate style games, anything built around Fate, they use abstract distances as their core. They don't expect, they use zones as their core idea. And that way, you don't have an expectation that you need a bunch of maps and minis. Most of the RPGs that I played that aren't D&D, many of them don't require it. Pathfinder is an obvious exception, but Pathfinder, Paizo, actually sells tons of different maps, and their adventures have the expectation that you're going to have that map as well. And they also have their big box of tokens. They have lots of different solutions for Pathfinder. Again, it's very expensive, takes up space, takes up time, doesn't have exactly a lot of flexibility to it, but it's a commonly used tool for Pathfinder. D&D really doesn't have a lot of stuff like this. They have their campaign case for tokens. They have their campaign case for terrain. None of those are ideal solutions. The token one, you're still never going to have all the tokens that you need given a particular situation. And the campaign case, the kind of maps that you build with that aren't the kind of maps they put out in their own adventures. There is no ideal solution for using maps in your D&D game, but there are a lot of different solutions that you can try out to find the ones that work best for you. Maybe you do have the capability of putting a big TV screen in the center of your table so that you can use that and you can basically get the advantages of online play, but with a physical group. Maybe you really like drawing your maps out ahead of time, so you draw them out on those big sheets of paper. Maybe you just take snapshots of the maps and print them out and then put them out in front as the characters explore an area. Maybe you draw the block and line charts to 
do abstract maps. Maybe you run in theater of the mind. Maybe you run with abstract maps. There's lots of different solutions for this. I've talked about a bunch of different solutions, ones that I've tried that I thought really offered a good benefit to the game. But the reality is there isn't a perfect one. There are ones that you may prefer, and that's awesome. And when you find the ones that you prefer, hang on to them. My only real recommendation is try a bunch of things out, see which ones you like, consider how much they cost and how much time they take up, how much space they take up, and how flexible they are. Think about those four criteria when you're considering your maps. And then probably pick two or three that you think work really well for you and keep those in your DM toolkit. When you have those in your toolkit, you can take out the right one for the right time and use it to really enjoy the game at your table. When I was doing my whole exploration of maps and what to do with maps, I became aware of J.P. Kuvert and his website, his, his YouTube channel, where he has a bunch of different channels. I think it was Scipio who brought this up in the Sly Flourish Discord server and said, oh, you should take a look at these videos. And I went and immediately I was like, oh, somebody's actually making these fantastic videos that talk about how to draw maps. This is really excellent. And when I was looking at J.P.'s maps, he talked about some of the products that he's created to help people draw maps. I just talked about the guide drawing dungeons flick silver pens guide to drawing dungeons a 16 page book that talks all about how to draw dungeons and i ordered i was like oh i want to get a copy of this i want to go order this so i ordered the book and then jp sent me a message on discord and said hey i just saw that you ordered my book so i threw a whole bunch of other books in as well so i did pay for drawing dungeons i haven't paid for all of the rest of these these are complimentary copies sent to me by jp taking a look at taking a look at this stuff and i got this really nice package i got it right here i kept them in the box because the box uh, the box had them and they are, if I can get them open, he sent me a whole pile of stuff, including some cool pins that I immediately put on my cool D&D jean jacket, which I have. And so he creates a whole series of these, what I'm going to refer to as like chat books, like small booklets, right? Small sort of five by eight booklets. They're all short, staple bound, just a few pages each, like 16, 24 pages each. And they are beautiful. They are really, really fun. I was immediately just like, they're, they're, many of them are full color and they're just really, really creative and really, really cool. And he has a whole bunch of different lines of these things that he has today. We're going to talk about a few of these different lines, but just sitting there, my, my wife was sitting at the table with me and we were looking through these things. They were just like, I was jealous because I was like, God, the, the amount of creativity that went into these things is just awesome like they're really really beautiful stuff and his youtube channel fantastic youtube channel i subscribed immediately go take a look at his youtube channel where he talks about how he how he does these things but he's a lot of different areas that he that he's going so an example so you know he has the whole like flick silver pen line which is sort of how to make maps and how to do things like this. And I showed off the dungeon one, but there's a few other ones too. There's this one that's making making maps, which is generally about making overland maps. Again, talks about the, the right tools that, that he uses for this, how to draw mountains. Again, very simple, straightforward techniques for drawing things out. I tend not to draw overland maps, so I'm probably not going to do this too often. Mostly I steal things from other people. I steal stuff from like Dyson logos and stuff like that. But really, really neat on like how to, you know, if you have an idea for your own area that you want to draw out, really good technique for like, like how to make your map, how to, how to describe it. And again, short 14-page book that has the whole thing. Really, really excellent. By the way, all of this stuff, you find sh links in the show notes below. You can go to J.P. Kuvert's store, pick up all of his stuff, and I would recommend picking a lot of it up that you think is cool because I really like it. And there's like Flick Silverpen's Dragon Town. One of the things that I was immediately taken by by all of the products that I looked at is I, I'm, I'm no expert in this, but they felt like it would work really well for kids. 
right? One of the things is a lot of the products that we look at are kind of sometimes steering towards adults. And you look at the stuff that's coming out here, the style of art, the, 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 the style of the stories that are going on here. I think these would be excellent resources to bring kids into this hobby that we love so much. And this is a good example. The idea of Dragon Town. You just have a place called Dragon Town, right? Already really neat. Very cool map. And this is a, you know, adventuring in Dragon Town. This is a very short book that gives you, it's a 23 page book, gives you a whole description of this one area and the areas around it where you can conduct a bunch of adventures, friendly faces, knowledge in the area. But the, the design of it is something I really love. The artwork that's in here, the way the physical product is designed, it's this perfect mix of the content and the design together, working together in these really nice lightweight booklets that you can, that you can pick up. So it's really, really cool. I, 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 I just, I, you know, every one of these that I opened up, I was like, wow, this is a really cool idea. You know, all of these different sort of locations that people can go, the kind of stuff they sell. And, and it's pretty system agnostic, too. I don't think that this is built around fifth edition or any particular style. It's obviously fantasy based, but I think you could use this style with pretty much any fantasy RPG. You could use Fate, you could use Dungeon World, you could use any of the other, any of the other RPGs that you want to use. I think that this would be a really, a really fun, a really fun way to, to deal with it. A lot of adventure hooks, a lot of different ways to kind of get involved in the things that are going on in town. Again, of course, beautiful maps. I like this, the Alley Cat's hideout like look at this this really awesome sort of 3d isometric hideout is fantastic so really really neat stuff i like this the mausoleum you know mausoleum and cemetery oh just really really cool stuff oh look there's a zombie throwing up his own guts that's cool so really, really neat stuff. And all of his, all of this work is like this. You know, we have the, the city of eternal night, sort of a darker, a, a darker version. This is more of like an adventure location with adventure hooks where the characters could explore same style, same kind of really cool. I love this. Like, look at this. This is, you know, big rope bridge that takes you to the city. Really neat stuff. Lots of bats, but even still, you still get these sort of like friendly, hey, friendly bat people, right? Really cool idea. Short, again, 14 page book. Very digestible, very digestible book. JP has his own little role-playing system for things called Goons and Ghosts, sort of a Ghostbusters-style role-playing game. Again, very short, 16-page booklet that you can pick up if you ever wanted to do a Ghostbusters-style RPG. Maybe if kids are interested in Ghostbusters and you want to play this out, you can definitely do so. Very straightforward rule set for, for, for rolling on things. It uses 2d6 and an ability score, three abilities. Very straightforward stuff. Whole system about how to trap ghosts. But what I really, you know, different, like what happens when you cross the streams, how to make a character. One of the things I really liked for this and, and sort of like, what's your team name? What's your headquarters like? The character sheet looks like the backpack from Ghostbusters. I thought that was a really, a really creative idea, right? Like background, your max, your current, your stats, who you're going to call, of course, right? Like who's your buddy who's, when, you, when you're in trouble, who do you call? GM resources, right? Very, very cool stuff. I love this. I love this. Oh, look, don't touch the ghouls. He's throwing up. He doesn't feel well. It's got, a, got, a, got an issue going on. Very straightforward monsters that you can, you can pick. Really, really fun. Really fun book. I, I looked at that and I was like, man, that, that, that is really, that is, that, is some, that is some cool stuff. This also grabbed me. The Astralan Odyssey, A Monster Draws Near. This is another series of adventures that he has. And this is all directly based on like the old Nintendo Entertainment System style role-playing games that first came out. Your Dragon Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior style games. The first role-playing game I played on a Nintendo back in the 80s was, I think it was called, 
it was Dragon Quest One, but they renamed it in the states to I think Dragon Warrior, and it had like two fixed encounters. Everything was like random encounters and random loot and random draws. But there was like an Axe Man that was dedicated, and then there was the boss of the place. Very very straightforward role playing game. Again, a very system agnostic adventure kind of system that is going back to the idea of playing these old Nintendo, these eight bit Nintendo games, these eight bit Nintendo role playing games. And just immediately took me back, like immediately reminded me of the kind of the kind of game that we played back then, which was really fun. So I think that from a nostalgia standpoint, you can definitely get you and your group involved. Like, look at the map, right? These really cool maps that look like those old 8-bit maps that we would play back in the original Final Fantasies, the original Dragon Warriors, things like that. Cool, notable locations, cool explorations, your random encounters, of course, because it's so random encounter random encounter based and you know and the monster draws near is sort of the monster manual version of this thing what are the monsters like what kind of what kind of attacks do they do you know what are their general stats and of course the 8-bit style artwork for all of these things the bourbon the big rat you know just fun so and that's really like when i was looking through all of jp's work every one of them i was just blasted by the, the creativity that was, comes with this these ideas of like why not make an rpg that that harkens back to those old 1980s nintendo role-playing games that we remember you know dracon right the powerful gold obsessed evil warlock from the dark world really really great stuff so please check out the work of jp covert you can check out his youtube channel watch some of his videos they're excellent videos i really enjoyed them go to his website look through the products he's got pick them out if you want to learn how to draw maps in particular that one about drawing maps i absolutely love but all of this stuff is really cool and really creative so you can find links to all of that in the show notes below jp you still around and is there anything i missed anything you're like oh man i really wish mike had talked about x did i miss anything that you really wanted uh 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 I went through very quickly on a lot of products because holy cow, you make a lot of products. Look at these. I hope you're. I hope you're. I hope you're as proud of this as you should be because these are amazing work. This is just amazing stuff. I am. I'm floored by it. It's really, really cool. Awesome. Great stuff. And thanks for coming to the chat today and hanging out. How are we on time? Oh my God, it's eleven seventeen. How long is the recording we going? Fifteen nine minutes. We're not going to have a time. We'll do. We'll do like one question. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month, patrons of Sly Flourish get access to a monthly Patreon Q&A. They can ask any RPG-related question. I answer all of them Friday mornings. Some of them I bring here to the show. Other ones I will do an article or video about. Sometimes I have an article or video that comes out months after they asked, where I really dive into the topic to look at it. Victor N. says, What are your thoughts on rewarding players with inspiration? It seems like the rules of written intent is to reward players who stay true to their characters, personalities, flaws, etc. But I often forget to do this, and my players are generally good at staying in character anyways. I'm more likely to know Notice and reward clever combat tactics and creative solutions to problems. I tried giving inspiration when Players World Natural One in combat as a sort of consolation prize, but that didn't feel right. How do you handle it? Not well. So I'll tell you the house rule that I have used for the longest that worked pretty well was everybody starts with inspiration at the beginning of a session and they don't get it again. So you you want to spend you, you don't it doesn't carry over uh, and you get it at the beginning of every session anyway. So you want to use it at least once during a session. The nice thing about that is you never have to think about it. Everybody gets it, they all know they get it. They use it once per session, everything works well. That works well if you're running a game that's relatively short, like two and a half to three hours, which is typically how long my games last. If you're doing like a four hour game, you could do something where like at the break, you get inspiration again. But generally speaking, that, that, that rule has worked well for shorter games. And I, I, I liked it a lot. There are a couple of new things that we've tried. One of the things that I think is a kind of a fun idea that you could just grab right out of it and drop into your D&D game 
is the idea of the Lux system that is part of Tales of the Valiant, Cobalt Press's new 5e variant that they are playtesting right now. And I think the Kickstarter is coming out on Tuesday. So in, in the Lux system, you get up to five luck points. If you hit a sixth luck point, you roll 1d4. So you lose luck points if you accidentally go over. You can expend a luck point to get a plus one on any roll and you can expend three luck points to re-roll a roll like you had inspiration. You gain a luck point every time you fail a, an attack roll or a saving throw. You don't get them for ability checks. That way you can't spam ability checks. But anytime you fail an attack roll or saving throw, you get one of these luck points. If you fail three of them, you have three, you could do a full re-roll. The nice thing about this is that the players can keep track of it themselves automatically. You don't ever have to think about it. You describe the system to them and they just put it in place. If you want to see more about this, check out the Cobalt Press site. I'll link to it in the show notes below. But the luck system, I think is a, is a pretty good one too. I like that one. One thing I've been playing with, I haven't really used this yet, but one thing I've been playing with with a very lightweight 5e variant that I've been working on called Lightning 5e is the idea that anytime you fail two checks in a row, you get inspiration. So you can get it on a one. You can get it anytime you fail two checks in a row and you start with it. And the nice thing about that is, again, it's completely passed off to the player. The DM doesn't have to worry about it. One of the problems that you, you talk about with inspiration is the very thing that you describe, which is like, we're busy. DMs are already busy. I don't, I got six people around the table. Everyone's yelling. There's food flying around. I don't have time to think about all this stuff. So the idea that I want to award people, it was so arbitrary that even from the earliest days, I remember people complaining about how arbitrary inspiration was and that it was very easy to do like favoritism and stuff like that. So the systems that I like the best so far are the ones where you hand it to the players and they manage it. Assuming that you put a system in place where it can't be exploited. The Lux system is pretty good. I like the Lux system. We've, we've been doing that in my Scarlet Citadel game and that's worked really well. Um, and I might carry that over to other games. The idea, especially for a shorter game, of everybody starts with inspiration and once you've spent it, you spent it. That works really well too. You could also say, of course, that somebody can spend their inspiration to help someone else if it's an important role. That way you're not getting too many of them and you don't have to worry about it. And the idea of getting it when you roll a natural one is not bad or getting it if you failed two checks in a row. Some people have said like, well, the problem of tracking that is hard. But if you're having trouble tracking how many losses you've had, then you don't really need it anyway. It's really when you're just having a bad night and you roll two attacks and like, I failed both attack rolls. Well, at least you get inspiration and then you can use it on the next attack roll or something like that. So Victor, that's what I would do. The Italian guy says, I'm using your check for deadly encounter rules and they work great. But I was wondering if you had something similar to gauge how deadly a series of encounters is in a row would be. I.e., let's say that exploring a dungeon, I'll have my party face four to five encounters without a long rest but with maybe one short rest aka the adventuring day oh boy the adventuring day is there a formula i can use to test the lethality of these N no i don't think so and pardon me for a bit of a rant i've already been ranting a bunch today so why stop now i'm not a big believer in the idea of the adventuring day first of all i think it's really important that we actually look at what the dungeon master says when we hang on to this idea of the adventuring day because i went and looked and it doesn't say what everybody says. So here's what the Dungeon Master's Guide actually says on the adventuring day. This is in the building encounter section of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Assuming typical adventuring conditions and average luck, most adventuring parties can handle about six to eight medium or hard encounters in a day. If the adventurer has more easy encounters, the adventurers can get through more. If it has more deadly, they can get through fewer. In the same way that you figure out difficulty of an encounter, you can use the XP values of the monsters and other opponents in an adventure as a guideline for how far the party is likely to progress. For each character in the party, blah, 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 blah. And it does a bunch of stuff. 
it's that can handle that people are seeming to forget. They think that that means the adventuring day should be that big. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that's how much they could potentially handle in the day. It doesn't mean that you need to be running six to eight medium or hard encounters in a day. It doesn't mean that the whole game's math is wired around those things. In fact, the designers have said it's not. That when they're talking about encounter building and stuff like that, they're assuming fresh characters. So I wouldn't hang on to... My, my whole thought with the adventuring day is not to worry about it. Don't think about it. Just ignore adventuring day issues and think about the encounters that are going on, the situation that the characters are getting involved in. Think about your dials of monster difficulty and think about your upward and downward beats. You can find links to all this idea of monster difficulty and, and upward and downward beats in the notes below. But essentially... You, you you know, there isn't a good, there, I mean, remember the deadly encounter threshold is a really loose gauge already. And that's just for one encounter. Trying to use that for multiple encounters, it's just not going to work out that well. I know that many of us desperately want a clear formula for exactly how much you can put characters through so that it's a challenge, but not too much of a challenge. And that I'll burn their stuff out, but it's not going to be too much of a pain in the ass. There isn't going to be that for fifth edition. It's a fifth edition. First of all, if you look at the core mechanic of a 20 sided die, this even distribution from one all the way to 20, the game is already so swingy that just with that mechanic alone, you cannot do a bunch of stuff to figure it out. There aren't enough roles. There aren't enough. You're not going to be able to get like an even distribution of this. Then when you mix in the synergy of characters, the things that they bring, the abilities that they have, the, the experience of the players, the environments that they're going through, all of these different things, how they get through encounters. The more we try to get to a system that tells us exactly how many, how many encounters they can get through is the minute we're going to start railroading them for those encounters. Then if they sneak around one, we feel bad because, oh, you skipped one of the ones, but now you're going to have more resources than you should when you go to the final boss. Who cares? Right? Don't worry about that. So I would, I would, I recommend, and you know, mine, it's just like my opinion, man, right? You don't have to listen to me. And if you have other thoughts and other ways and other experiences that tell you it worked better a different way, go with the gods, whatever, whatever way you're enjoying the game is the right way. You do not need to listen to me, but you did ask the question. And my thought on it is that we really don't like, don't worry about the adventuring day. Think about your upward and downward beats. Think about like, are they really on death's door and they're about to go into a boss fight? Maybe we want to figure out a way that they're not going to go in and just get killed because all they have left are cantrips. All of their hit dice are gone. All their healing is gone. All their stuff is gone. Like worry about that. And then think about like, maybe if there's a way that they could get something, a potion that they drink that gives them half of their stuff back or something, you know, I'll do a lot of like, they get the equivalent of a short rest. They find a secret room. There's a gemstone in the room that's radiating radiant light. If you, you know, touch it, it gives you the equivalent of a short rest without having to take the time. There's ways to do that. There's upward beat ways to kind of give characters some of the resources back if you feel like they burn too much and you want to get there. Otherwise, you might say like you, you, you think you might have to come back or you think like today's not the day, right? Like they, they made those choices. They, they picked those things. So I would not worry too much. I don't think there is a formula that matches. I'm, I'm not seeking one out. I am not. I've spent a ton of time on the math and thinking and rethinking and rethinking and rethinking the whole idea of the like the lazy encounter benchmark. And it's as good as I can get, I think at this point. And I think it works pretty well. I'm not seeking out 
more detail on that. I think that it is as simple as it can be and it's as effective as it can be. And after that, we have to, you know, what is happening at your table is going to have a bigger effect than any equation is going to be able to tell you. I tell you a great question. It's one I definitely thought about and I'm, I put it in here because it is something I want to talk about. So thank you for that. Friends, I want to thank you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in RPGs. If you enjoyed this show, you want more stuff like this, please subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Doing so is absolutely free. It gives you a free adventure generator PDF and a weekly RPG related article article sent directly to your inbox. You can also join the Sly Flourish Patreon where you can ask questions like this for the, in the monthly Q&A, join our dedicated Discord server, get access to a whole bunch of exclusive information like the City of Arches source book, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a whole bunch of other things. And you can pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore. All of the links for that are down in the show notes below. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.